Welcome to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. The show is heard on WBCQ The Planet every Monday and Friday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also pick up this show on our flagship platform, Podomatic, uh, Amazon, oh boy, a whole bunch of them, Spotify, iHeart, and uh, uh, about a half a dozen others. And uh, this, again, originates on WBCQ The Planet, which is broadcast out of beautiful Monticello, Maine, in Arista County. And uh, it is host, or I should say, sponsored by Camp Constitution, which, among other things, runs a week-long family camp. And this year's camp will be, I should say, next year's camp. We had a great camp this year. And next year's camp, July 14th to the 19th at the same venue where it's been since 2020, Singing Hills Christian Camp. But if you would still like to have a Camp Constitution experience, but you can't spend a whole week, we have a weekend camp coming up later this month, September 29th to October 1st at the uh, Camp Sentinel in Tuftonboro, New Hampshire, which is just two towns north of me. And uh, we have a good lineup, as we always do. Um, We're going to have Jim Perloff, author of Tornado Through a Junkyard, Richard Howell, historian, and uh, Mrs. Catherine White, and, of course, Reverend Stevie Kraft. And and to get more information about Camp Constitution and everything else that we do, please visit our website, campconstitution.net. Uh, come, we have some events coming up, some really exciting events coming up. This is going to be a busy month. Uh, we, um, I'm going to be heading down to the uh, Mid-Atlantic Christian, uh, Ref- uh, Christian Reformation Association, and they're having their annual gathering. It's a weekend in um, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, and that will be, let's see, that will be the 14th, 15th, and 16th. Uh, I'll be heading down Thursday, the events Friday, Saturday. Uh, and I'll be presenting as well as having an information table. And then on Sunday, I have to leave very early in the morning to be at an event in Newton, Massachusetts, a Second Amendment um, event sponsored by the Norfolk County Republicans. And then we'll have uh, Charles Van Week. He'll, I'll be meeting him in Pennsylvania. He'll be attending that same conference, Mid-Atlantic Reformation Society's annual uh, conference. And he'll be speaking in Lexington, Massachusetts, at a luncheon, as well as an evening presentation. And then Tuesday, that would be the 19th at the um, Community Church of Alton, New Hampshire, 7 p.m., and then we head up to Maine for two events. So uh, the, all this information is on our web. Well, if you go to our website and look for calendar, it has the information on the calendar. Uh, we had to change the venue of our Wednesday morning event. because I'm sorry, Thursday morning event because um, Charles had to uh, has to get a flight out of Bangor, Maine, and there wouldn't be enough time to bring him. But anyway, it's all going to work out. And Charles is the author of Shooting Back, uh, and he wrote a second book, I think, Shooting Back Again. And he uh, was, uh, he's a missionary from South Africa, incredible guy. He was in a church, I think it was in Cape Town, it was actually 30 years ago. Just, and four terrorists, communist terrorists, came in with AKs, and they murdered, I think, at least 11 people. 
and wounded dozens of others. And all Charles had was a 38 snub nose. Now, those are nice little handguns, but uh, if I had a choice between an AK and a snub nose, I'm choosing the AK. But the communists uh, hightailed it. One man, you know, the old the Bible verse, you know, one, one puts a thousand to flight. Well, in this case, he had a handgun. But those AKs, uh, four men with an AK, is almost like a thousand people. Um, if it was, if it was, um, you know, the firepower. Anyway, um, he they ran out of the church and uh, they actually were arrested, even though uh, the ANC was in power, is in power, and they're communist uh, thugs. It wasn't authorized, so um, they end up going to jail. And he, this incredible Christian man, he witnessed to them in jail. He prayed for them. And one of them said, our goal was to kill every single person in that church, man, women, woman, and child. That's just how evil these communists are, folks. They are evil people. They are lost evil people to do something. So just to come into a church because you're white and they have so much hatred towards white people. And by the way, yeah, I know there are uh, white, like the man down in Florida that killed three black people and committed suicide. There's just... This this hatred is a consuming thing. That's why you need the you need the you need Jesus in your life, folks. That's really the solution. Things could be so much simpler if people would just accept Jesus Christ uh, and turn their life around. Uh, but there's a there's a con there's in the Bible God says I think it's in Romans that God uh, because of people's evil and deception and uh, He gives them over to a reprobate mind and that that simply means a damaged mind. And I know that with God, all things are possible. So even people who are in this deep evil can still turn around. But we see this, uh, so many people, especially in the political arena, that just have this uh, profound hatred. Uh, and this, you know, say, what's wrong with their brains? You know, people who believe in 50 genders and homosexuality has been elevated to, uh, you know, just uh, basically if you're homosexual or you're transgender you are a first class citizen and a protected class it's just amazing anyway today is labor day now of course some of you be listening to this show um a few days from now when labor day is over but i uh, subscribe to a uh, a great a great uh, it's not i don't get a, a hard uh, written newsletter but it's an email from the american minute americanminute.com and it's put out by William Federer. William Federer is a real national treasure. I mean, this man has authored so many books, uh, American history, Americans, godly heritage. It's just incredible. And so, he, uh, you know, when you, when you subscribe to the American Minute, you get an email and you get one. I don't know if it's several a, a week. You don't get one every day. And this is a great article. It's going to take more than a minute to read this, by the way. Um and it's very comprehensive and thorough, but it's it's great. So the name of the article is Labor Day Railroad Strikes, Grover Cleveland, Eugene Debs, Socialist Party of America, Outsourcing American Minute with Bill Federer. And uh, so I'm going to start to appreciate. And you can go to the website and you could um, they give you unlimited right to use this as long as you credit the, credit them. So I'm going to post this on our camp blog um, within a sh sometime today. To appreciate Labor Day, one needs to know the history preceding it. At the time the United States was founded, most people were self-employed, working as either farmers or in trades, <coughs> such as baker, butcher, carpenter, cabinet maker, upholsterer, tailor, milliner, clothes merchant, cobbler, 
shoemaker, uh, Chandler, which is a candle maker, Cooper, someone who makes barrels. And if you live up in uh, Arista County, you know, there's a lot of barrel makers around there to put those potatoes in. Wheelwright, which is a wheel craftsman, blacksmith, gunsmith, printer, and apothecary, which is a pharmacist. Then the Industrial Revolution began in in the late 18th century, where Ireland burned peat from bogs. Britain burned coal from mines. The problem was that mines kept filling up with water. Scottish inventor James Watt came up with an invention to pump water out of mines, a steam pump. Steam was soon harnessed in the early 19th century, not just to power pumps, but railroad steam engines, steamboats, and textile manufacturing machines. This led to the creation of factories which could mass-produce items inexpensively. European manufactured uh, products were imported into America. Soon, Americans built their own factories. Originally, There was no federal income tax. The federal government was financed primarily from excise taxes on items like salt, tobacco, liquor, and tariff taxes on imports from European factories. Tariff taxes made European products more expensive, motivating consumers to buy products manufactured in America. Most of America's factories were located in northern states. The tariff taxes that helped the northern states hurt the southern states, as the south was predominantly agriculture and had few factories to protect. At one point, nearly 90% of the federal budget came from tariff taxes collected at southern ports. This fueled animosity between the states leading up to the Civil War. After the Civil War, the North passed even more tariff taxes, which successfully allowed northern factories to grow enormous. Manufacturers produced items like clothes, glass, dishes, and farm tools for a fraction of the previous costs. Machines freed women up from tedious daily tasks such as hand weaving, thread, hand sewing, cloth, and hand washing clothes. Instead of carrying water from a well, pumps and pipes brought water directly into homes. New ways of making stronger iron and steel led to the building of bridges, skyscrapers, steamboats, and mining machinery. Railroads began taking people safely and expensively across the entire nation, opening up unprecedented mobility and opportunity. Inventions and advances in manufacturing made more goods available at cheaper prices. This resulted in Americans experiencing the fastest increase in the standard of living of any people in the world. Factories had a continual source of workers from the millions of immigrants who not only got a job, but learned the language and trade skills. President Grover Cleveland dedicated the Statue of Liberty in 1886 to welcome immigrants, immigrants who were anxious to assimilate, learn the English language, and swear allegiance to their new country. Immigrants were known for their hard work. This described in the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, written by German sociologist Max Weber. Uh, in the, the date is 1904, 1905. And I'm sure you can pick up this book. I've not read it, but I recommend it. It is a foundational net, a textbook in economic sociology listed as the fourth most important sociological book of the 20th century in, in by the International Sociological Association. Weber documented how modern capitalism evolved out of the Protestant Calvinism in Northern Europe, which emphasized asceticism, that's denial, self-denial, self-discipline, hard work, frugality, thrift, and avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. He described Calvinists, Baptists, Methodists, Quakers, traditional Lutherans, Pietists, Lutherans, and Moravians, particularly Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf's Herhut community. 
Hernhut community. Religious adherents established private secular enterprises engaged in trade and accumulated wealth for both investment and for the support of charitable missionary activity. A popular literary genre developed of rags to riches stories where individuals exhibiting hard work, honesty, and strength through adversity achieved success. In 1867, Horatio Alger began publishing a best-selling series of novels such as Ragged Dick, Strong and Steady, or Paddle Your Own Canoe, and Shifting for Himself, or Gilbert Grayson's Fortune. There were stories about immigrants, impoverished orphans, or homeless street boys who demonstrated the Protestant work ethic and rose from humble beginnings to have great purpose and achieve outstanding accomplishments. In 1894, Orison Sweat or Sweet Marden published a uh, wrote Pushing to the Front, and in 1897 founded Success Magazine publishing inspirational stories of success in life through common-sense principles and well-rounded virtues. Immigrants were not a financial burden on the government as there were no government welfare programs. Extended family members, churches, and individuals giving charity provided the welfare net. Some immigrants brought with them European socialist and anarchist ideas and exacerbated labor tensions to further their larger goal of tearing down the capitalist system in order to set up a socialist economy. Though no one was forced to work in factories, some laborers began to organize for better working conditions. Organizing flyers were written in the English and German languages. In May of 1886, a protest in Chicago near the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company plant turned into the Haymarket Riot, a quote, in quotes, peaceful protester, close quote, threw a dynamite bomb at the police. The blast and subsequent violence resulted in seven police officers and four civilians killed, along with dozens wounded. To commemorate the incident, they chose May 1st to be the annual International Workers' Day. Another incident was a railroad strike in 1894. An ideal factory setting was created by George Pullman, who founded the Pullman Railroad Sleeping Car Company just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Pullman saw that workers needed a place to live, so he built them houses and a safe little village around the factory. When rent deducted from paychecks to save them the trouble of traveling to the markets, he located stores on site. Workers were paid company script similar to food stamps, which were redeemable at the company-owned grocery store. It was considered to be a type of utopian workers' paradise community. In the same vein as Sir Thomas More Island of Utopia, published in 1516, and Sir Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, published in 1626. The Pullman community worked for over a decade until something happened. There was a nationwide economic depression in 1893, and orders for railroad sleeping cars suddenly dropped off. To keep the company afloat, George Pullman had to make cuts in wages and lay off hundreds of employees, though for the time being, rent and groceries stayed the same price. Some immigrants from Europe spread Karl Marx's idea of critical theory, dividing the nation up into groups and pitting them against each other in a class struggle. Employees were distraught as they had grown completely dependent on the company. Some employees walked off their jobs, demanding higher pay and lower rents, being unaware that the reason for the cuts was that the company needed to stay in business during the national economic crash. A leader of the strikes was Eugene Debs. A high school dropout, Debs got a job cleaning grease, from freight engines. He was promoted to locomotive fireman and rose in the brotherhood of locomotive firemen. He briefly served as a Terre Haute city clerk and a one-term Indiana state representative. 
When the nation experienced the financial crisis, Debs agitated and organized a strike of railroad workers in 1894. Soon, railroad workers across the nation boycotted trains carrying Pullman cars. There was rioting, pillaging, and burning of railroad cars, destroying an estimated $80 million worth of property in 27 states. A New York Times editorial, July 9, 1894, called Debs a lawbreaker at large and enemy of the human race. Imagine New York Times would never, and this is my commentary, would say something like that today. They would be championing him. Debs' rebellion became a national issue when it interrupted the trains delivering mail. President Grover Cleveland declared the strike a federal crime and deployed 12,000 U.S. Army troops to break up the strike. More violence erupted and two men were killed. After the devastating riots and shutdowns, Americans were disconnected, or I should say discontented, with the Democrat administration. Democrat advisor Francis Lynn Stetson warned Cleveland regarding the upcoming midterm elections of 1894. We are on the eve of a very dark night unless a return of commercial prosperity relieves popular discontent with what they believe is Democrat incompetence to make laws and consequently with Democratic administrations anywhere and everywhere. Cleveland thought it might improve his party's chances if workers were given a day off, so support grew for National Labor Day. And let me comment that is my opinion that Grover Cleveland was the last good Democrat president. It wasn't perfect. But since nobody is, uh, there hasn't been a good Democrat, in my opinion, since then. Anyway, back to the article. Cleveland intentionally did not choose May 1st, as it was the anniversary of the bloody Chicago's Haymarket riot and the International Workers' Day. Let me comment again. May 1st, 1776, was also the founding of the Bavarian Illuminati. And the socialists in the know know that. Most uh, people have no idea. And that's most likely why May 1st was chosen. Uh, instead, Grover Cleveland chose the first Monday in September to celebrate Labor Day. As far as the 1894 election went, it did not help. Cleveland's Democrat Party had the biggest midterm loss in decades. Patriotic Americans in opposition to socialists began celebrating May 1st as Loyalty Day, which was officially recognized by the U.S. Congress in April 27, 1955, and proclaimed by President Eisenhower being made an annual holiday with Public Law 85-526. Strike organizer Eugene Debs was arrested for mail obstruction and put in prison for six months. While in prison, Debs ravagously read Karl Marx's Das Kapital. Demands by socialist progressives to redistribute wealth led to the passage of the Corporate Income Tax, 1894, the Personal Income Tax, 1914, and the Inheritance Estate Tax, 1916. And by the way, this was all during the Wilson administration, and these were all Democrats pushing this nonsense. Corporate income tax, personal income tax, inheritance tax. So when, and by this, this is my commentary, I'm off off the script here. Uh, when people tell you that the Democrats are interested in helping the middle class or the poor, the workers, that's a lie because it didn't. It just, the, This tax, they'd only, they, they've been robbing you blind. And then basically they've been, it's how, just how it works. They take a hundred dollars from you in taxes and give you back $2, and you have to be grateful and support them undying uh, all your life because of that. So they take $100 from you, and they give you $2 back, and for that, you must vote for them. Back to the article. Eugene Debs and the rioters were defended by the attorney Clarence Darrow. Darrow later defended evolution in the Scopes Monkey Trial. After six months in prison, Eugene Debs was released and founded the Social Demo Democracy of America, 
1897, the Social Democrat Party of America, 1898, and the Socialist Party of America, 1901. <clears throat> Debs ran five times uh, for the U.S. president on Socialist Party of America ticket. As he won zero electoral votes, he opposed to the he was opposed to the electoral process. When World War I started, Eugene Debs urged resistance to the draft. Russia's socialist leader Vladimir Lenin referenced Eugene Debs in an open letter to Boris Sovereign, published January 27, 1918, in Levente number no. 48. Look at America. Apart from everything else, a neutral country. Haven't we the beginning of a split there, too? Eugene Debs, the American rebel, declares in the socialist press that he recognizes only one type of war, civil war, for the victory of socialism, and that he would sooner be shot than vote a single cent for American war expenditure. See Debs' appeal to reason, when I shall fight. Number 1032, September 11th. 1915. One of those who followed Debs called to uh, be a draft dodger was Roger Baldwin, who later founded the ACLU to help defend those who were accused of being a uh, being communist agitators. Roger Baldwin wrote, I am for socialism. I seek social ownership of property, the abolition of the proprietary class, and sole control of those who produce wealth. Communism is the goal. In 1918, Debs was charged with 10 counts of sedition and sentenced to 10 years in prison. In protest of his sentence, Unionists, anarchists, socialists, and communists marched in support of Debs in a May Day parade in Cleveland, Ohio. The peaceful parade broke out into an Antifa-style violence, the May Day riots of 1919. When Debs' attorney asked for a presidential pardon, Woodrow Wilson wrote, denied across the paperwork and stated, while the flower of American youth was pouring out its blood to vindicate the cause of civilization, this man, Deb, stood behind the lines, sniping, attacking, and denouncing them. This man was a traitor to his country, and he will never be pardoned during my administration. The next president, Warren G. Harding, also did not pardon Debs, and the White House released his statement. There is no question of his guilt. He is a dangerous man calculated to mislead the unthinking and affording excuse for those with criminal intent. In 1979, Bernie Sanders produced a documentary praising Eugene Debs. He hung a portrait of Debs in the City Hall of Burlington, Vermont, and Dave had a plaque to him in his congressional office. After Vladimir Lenin organized the Bolshevik Revolution overthrowing Russia's government, he formed the Communist International in 1919. This persuaded some members of Eugene Debs' Socialist Party of America to break off and form the Communist Party USA. The Communist Party USA ran candidates for the U.S. president every year from 1920 till they decided to support Democrat President Franklin D. Roosevelt during World War II, as Roosevelt had allied himself with the USSR's Joseph Stalin. Chicago statue dedicated to the police officers who were killed in the 1886 Haymarket riot was blown up on October 6, 1969, by Bill Ayers and Eric Mann's militant group Weathermen Underground during the Days of Rage. The Haymarket statue was rebuilt only to be blown up again by the Weathermen Underground on October 6, 1970. Weathermen member Bill Ayers later helped launch the political career of a young Illinois state senator, Barack Obama. And let me mention, too, that not only did he help him, but Bill Ayers and his communist wife, Bernadette Dorn, hosted fundraising meetings in their home for Obama. So Obama cut his political teeth in the home of this communist terrorist. 
Uh, I am a, so this is uh, back to the article. I am a radical leftist, small C communist. Maybe I'm the last communist who was willing to admit it. The ethics of communism still appealed to me. I don't like Lenin as much as the early Marx. Uh, close quote. Weatherman member Eric Mann helped train Patrice Coulors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Coulors, Coulors stated in 2015, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers we are trained marxists we are super versed on sort of ideological theories and all of these uh white and this is my commentary all these white leftists white liberals with their black lives matter signs uh, some of them know this and that's why they, they support others are just either stupid or they're naive they think somehow i'll i'll i'll, I'll um put the sign on the front lawn here and they won't they won't bother me like the, i'm one of them they won't they'll pass by the house and not you know it's like uh it's like in the bible you know the passover you know uh god spared the jews uh when he when he um in in uh, in egypt um well that doesn't help you when it comes to communist terrorists though they don't care if you have a if you're white and have a black lives matter sign <laughs> there, there was uh during the riots in uh, i think portland there was some white liberal that had a biden sign and a black Lives matter sign they came by uh his oh you know i'm one of you oh screw you whitey and uh, i think they did some damage to his house uh, anyway let me get back to the article in america laborers worked hard for wages with which they could buy trucks, houses, cars, boats, guns, and other personal possessions. They can also be moved up to give of their possessions to those in need, which is called charity. Reagan stated in 1988, I believe God did give mankind unlimited gifts to invent, produce, and create. Booker T. Washington founded the National Negro Business League. He stated, anyone can seek a job, but it requires a person of rare ability to create a job. What we should do in our schools is to turn out fewer job seekers and more job creators. In socialist countries, and that's the end of the quote, in socialist countries, laborers were forced to work hard but could own no possessions. The government took them all away, people with no possessions having nothing with which to be charitable. Socialists believe that when the government finally finishes taking every away everyone's possessions, then the world will arrive at an imagined ideal utopian called communism. The term communism comes from the Latin word communis, meaning everything held in common. There'll be no private ownership of anything. There'll be no privacy. People will not even have control over their children. The government will control everything on both production side and consumption side. In 1971, John Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono co-wrote the song Imagine with socialist-themed lyrics, Imagine No Possessions and No Religion Too. Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum stated that by 2030, you will own nothing but be happy. Of course, in my comment here, Klaus, Klaus Schwab owns a whole lot, yeah, well, super wealthy. The term socialism was coined by French political philosopher Henry de Saint-Simon who lived from 1760 to 1825, as the opposite of the individual. The use of the term socialism was popularized by mid to late 1800s European theorists such as Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Leon Trotsky, and Antonio Gramsci, where power was taken away from individuals and concentrated into the hands of the state. One of the significant contributions of the Judeo-Christian Western civilization is the concept of you having a worth and identity as an individual apart from any group. Gramsci, who founded the Italian Communist Party, wrote in his prison notebook, 
1925. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values can't be overthrown until those roots are cut. Socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. End of quote. And folks, that uh, he's been successful beyond his wildest dreams. During Russia's Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, socialism became identified as a distinct transitional phrase between capitalism and communism. Okay. I'm just, uh, just don't want to run out of time here. This is a, between the article and my comments, uh, I don't want to, so I get, I get a few minutes left. The most opportune time for transition is in crises. Marx and Frederick Engels explained Marx and Engels collected works in, um, quoting them now, conspirators by no means confine themselves to organizing the revolutionary proletariat working class. Their businesses consist in spurring into artificial crises. For them, the only condition required for the revolution is a sufficient organization of their own conspiracy. They are the alchemists of the revolution. The term capitalism, this is, uh, that's end of quote. The term capitalism is where individuals with their own money or capital could invest and have a business providing goods or services. The production side, individuals could then earn a profit, which then could, which they then could decide how to spend. The consumption side, Karl Marx wrote in the critique of the Gotha program, between capitalism and communism society, there lies a period of the revolutionary transformation. Lenin considered socialism as the transition phase from capitalism to communism, stating, the goal of socialism is communism. Karl Marx explained the theory of communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. Author An Rand wrote, there is no difference between communism and socialism except in the means of achieving the same ultimate end. Communism proposes to enslave men by force, socialism by vote. It is merely the difference between murder and suicide, close quote. Unions did help to bring about the eight-hour workday, a 40-hour work week, minimum wages, safer working conditions, and more benefits for workers. Henry Ford's Motor Company was the first to implement these benefits. An account circulated that Henry Ford met a Yemeni sailor at port and told him about auto factory jobs that paid $5 a day. The sailor spread the word, leading to a chain migration of uh, to, from Yemen and other parts of the Middle East. ArabAmerica.com reported September 5, 2020, the origin, the origin story of how Yemeni community in Michigan is an interesting one. Way back in the early 1900s, Henry Ford stated, started recruiting Yemeni workers to work at Ford's factories. After a few years, Ford sent for more workers, and the Yemeni American community began to grow. People who gained citizenship during this time worked for Ford, brought families over, and started their lives in Michigan while remaining close to their family back in Yemen. It looks like this is a lot... Okay, a lot longer than I thought. This, but it's a great article, and I'm going to post it. Um, he goes on to talk about uh, uh, how the, a lot of the uh, big companies ended up um, offshoring as as taxes and regulations became more difficult, and uh, they that these people became globalists, and so people like Henry Ford, his his grandson became a globalist. Um, and so they don't have any great love of America. It's all about profit. And in fact, a lot of them are willing to lose money as long as they can uh, set up shop in foreign countries. Among American workers, union membership since 1950 has declined from 50% to currently less than 12%. And most of those are government uh, unions. Um, 
warning American workers of the hidden danger of social justice movements, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who had spent 11 years in Union of Social Socialist Republics labor camp, stated, I call upon America to be more careful with its trust, prevent those who are attempting to establish even finer legal shades of equality because of their distorted outlook, short-sightedness and self-interest from falsely using the struggle for peace and for social justice to lead you down a false road. Anyway, uh, so this is the last. Uh, they are trying to weaken you. They are trying to disarm your strong and magnificent country in the face of this fearful threat. I call upon you, ordinary working men of America. Do not let yourself become weak. A spiritual encouragement is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, uh, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that's the end of the article. So I got most of it in. Is that uh, I probably shouldn't have commented on it, but it's sort of what I like to do here. Anyway, um, I want to thank you for listening to our show. You've been listening to Camp Constitution Radio with your host, Hal Shirtliff. And until next week, may God richly bless you. Yeah, we need to